This is Chatter. I'm Shane Harris. This week, multimedia artist Lori Anderson on stories about Guantanamo and 9-11. Pretty far along into this project, I got a communication from Homeland Security saying, basically, you will never be doing this project in the United States, ever. Don't think about it. Mohammed wrote me a letter that was addressed to Joe Biden, and he, he asked me to please deliver it. Basically, the letter just says, I'm not asking for an apology, Mr. President. I'm just asking for an acknowledgement that this happened. That's it. My favorite thing uh, about technology was written by a cryptologist. If you think technology will solve your problems, you don't understand technology, and you don't understand your problems. Lori Anderson, welcome to Chatter. Thank you so much for coming on our show. It's really, it is genuinely a thrill for me to talk to you. So thank you for being here. It's great to be here. Thanks for asking. Um, so your career kind of defies succinct summary and characterization for purposes of an intro, which is a little intimidating for me. But um, I really think of you as a storyteller who seems to have worked in every conceivable medium. Uh, you're a musician. I think a lot of our listeners probably will maybe know you most well as a musician. Uh, you are a visual multimedia artist. You are a writer, a painter. Uh, you've kind of done it all. And there is right now a terrific retrospective of your work here at the Hirshhorn Museum. Uh, in Washington, uh, which I saw. It was actually the first show that I'd seen after the Hirshhorn opened after the pandemic. Oh, really? Which yeah. was such a great way to be back in that glorious museum. And it's such a fitting space for your work. And the show is terrific. It just knocked me out. Oh. Um, I had read that you, when the Hirshhorn approached you about doing a retrospective, you initially said no. Is that right? Uh, yeah, I did. I was just, I'm not part of that world particularly, you know, I was, you know, and I know, um, how much work it is to do that. Yeah. And I was, I was kind of in the middle of some other stuff. I mean, I was really happy that they asked me, but I, I just thought, um, I wouldn't have, I did, I wasn't right in, uh, in that, in that mode at the time. So I said, uh, no, plus I, I, I didn't really want to to do a retrospective. I I, I like to kind of uh, see what I can, how I can move forward. So then they said, "No, it's okay if you you don't have to do all old stuff. You can do a lot of new stuff." So I thought, "Okay, I, I, I'll try that." And then, of course, it was a very long process, as we all know how many times things get <laughs> just postponed, canceled, you know, put on the back burner, and so it, it finally did happen and and I got in a little bit in the crack of you know uh between variants you know so that it opened when it yeah. was possible for kind people of this sweet spot yeah. yeah yeah and it's still there so you know um I don't know what's DC like right now or are, are, are that 
that many people coming to uh are there many tourists or yeah you know surprisingly over the christmas holidays i i one of my rituals is and it's become a pandemic ritual i ride my bike on the national mall and i actually I, you could still go to the hirshhorn sculpture garden during the pandemic so i spent a right. ton of time and which is oh, a wonderful nice. wonderful space and over the christmas holidays there were as many people here as i've seen during the pandemic so people are back really? um, there was a great crowd for your show when i saw it back in i think it was in October when I went and saw the retrospective. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the museums, I think, have drawn people in. The restaurants are full again. It's just this sort of, it, you know, the Omicron wave has made it feel like a little bit like March 2020 again. But I think that um, the signs of life are there. And, you know, your show, thankfully, is, is, is one of them. So how is it in New York? It's mixed. You know, it depends on the neighborhood. New York has about 20 different situations, and some of them... <laughs> Are, are really lively and really fun. And it reminds me somehow of the seventies, you know, when things were just sort of really um, upended and, mm. and interesting and others are, other neighborhoods are sadly empty. Midtown mm -hmm. is, you can stand up on a, like the 25th floor and look through office buildings Amazing. straight through them. You know, they're empty and they don't Amazing. have, like, um, it's not like people just left their desks for a minute. Yeah. You know, they, they don't have desks. There's no light. There's no AC. Mm -hmm. There's nothing there. So that's very unnerving to be up at that level and seeing how few people are, are up there. I it almost has echoes yeah. of 9-11, I would think, in some ways, too, of just when the, yeah. you know, the emptiness and the kind of <clears throat> time standing still. I didn't feel emptiness at 9-11. I, I felt a lot of people out on the street in the same kind of weird way that they are now, you know, in, mm. the, in the huts, in the, in the restaurant huts. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and it is great to see people coming out on the street, even in, in, uh, even in our igloos, you know, where we're sitting shivering, having coffee. Right. We right. still want to see each other that badly. So, you know, we, we go out and, and do that. So... You know, depending on the, I'd say depending on the neighborhood, it's it's um, you you could say a lot of different things about New York. Has the pandemic and the way people have to stay away from each other? How has that challenged you as an artist? Because obviously, you're making work for people to see. I mean, they can interact with it in different ways. Your music, of course, people can listen to that anywhere. But you know, so much of even the show at the Hirshhorn is you have to be in the room with it to really experience it. And I think there are even some like virtual reality elements you couldn't do because of COVID restrictions. Yeah, that was going to be about half virtual reality show um, exhibition. Um, but it's uh, there's no putting on the headsets now. Mm -hmm. And and it is true that it is a, um, it it surprised me how much it doesn't translate to screens and how important scale is and how important it is to be in those spaces and I had forgotten that as an artist because because in, in the pandemic you know you, I had to invent a few different forms particularly for these lectures that I was doing the Norton lectures mm -hmm. they had to all be Zoom and so um, I had to think of how to make a little kind of a small movie, you know, um, while I was talking about these, these, um, it, it was, um, about music nominally, although <laughs> they, they sort of strayed from the topic. Mm. Uh, and so it was for me a chance to see what I could, how, how I could make something in another form. 
um, it, so those lectures have always been delivered in in Cambridge live by people. Mm-hmm. It was uh, super intimidating to do them because, um, you know, some of my favorite people in the world. It was very very challenging, and and it was a really great time to sit around and think about what music is, you know, uh, over an extended period of time, and then have to come up with, you know. Uh, well, eventually that thing is about eight hours long of just um, various ideas about music and how it relates to image and how it relates to language. And mm. so it was, it was a very, for me, very absorbing way to, to um, uh, enter a kind of a new uh, shape, you know, the Zoom, sh- the Zoom shape. <laughs> right, right. And, you know, and so now I'm, I'm, I'm uh, working on some Zoom pieces that are, you know, I mean, there's. Have you seen any good Zoom art, by the way? You know, it's it's interesting. I'm gonna I'm gonna blank on the name, uh, and I'll try and find it on my Spotify here. But there was early on in the pandemic, there was a great band that released a single, and they ended up doing a video on Zoom where everybody was in a different room, yeah. and they put all the frames together, kind of like Brady Bunch style. Yeah. And each one of them was doing something with their arm or their head, and they looked like they were one body. Ooh, and that was and that was terrific. That was really really oh, cool. Oh, I'd love to check that out. Yeah. Oh gosh, I'll have to remember it and find it as we're talking. But yeah, I mean, it's sort of like I have a friend who's an actor in LA, uh, Drew Drogi, who's this great comic actor, and he has done uh, virtual readings of new plays and screenplays on Zoom. And they kind of they're all sort of in their little box, and they kind of even know when to look to each other. So people have right. actually made some really interesting yeah. theater and music. It's kind of making lemonade out of lemons, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, you, you know, when you walk into the retrospective at the Hirschhorn, one of the first things that people see when they come in is, I guess, in, in, in literal retrospective fashion, there is a giant timeline of your career that's up on the wall. And it's kind of a great way of situating people, you know, in terms of your art and all of the different musicians and painters that you've worked with. I mean, people like people like Peter Gabriel and Brian Eno or, you know, Julian Schnabel or others that are kind of all in your cohort. Um I wonder, what is that like when you have to just kind of step back and see <laughs> your career sort of <laughs> diagrammed on a wall? That it's, it's a lot of stuff. I love diagrams and timelines and, and maps and this kind of thing. Um, did you ever try to draw like a map of your life? I haven't done that, no. Yeah. Sometimes I'll do like a map of a story, but I haven't done a map of my yeah, life. Yeah, maps are really helpful, you know, and, and how things relate to each other. And um, I I kind of use them a lot when I'm trying to design something uh, rather than do particular timeline, like how does this song start or how does this theater work start? I, I draw a map of what it's about and it seems kind of static at first, you know, all of these different ideas and, and sometimes they don't even seem to relate to each other at all. And then I just try to see if they can, if there's any, connection between them and then start drawing those those kinds of lines because mm-hmm. rather than timelines then those are are, are kind of vectors that make yeah. you know a relationship between those things and then you see if there's a story in there but the stories that that I've written almost very few of them go anywhere <laughs> you know they're <laughs> they're uh, trying to evoke a place or a time right. and and see how they resonate against other other things I guess is how I could say it Kind of like the, even the, the reader's own or the viewer's own experience. I mean, it's they're almost like snippets from a home movie or 
pieces pulled out of a book and you're almost trying to get people to to see where you were and think about maybe if they've been in a similar situation. That's how I felt kind of going through some of your work. Right. And you know what I'm working on right now is an AI guide to the weather. Uh, The the name of the show is is weather. Yeah. And um, I've been working for a while with this group uh, um, in Australia and machine learning. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's really the kind of the most fun I've ever had with words because they dumped um, uh, everything I've ever written, songs, essays, interviews, you know, books, whatever, into this um, program. And and um, they did the same with everything that Lou ever wrote. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Lou Reed, your late husband, yeah. 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 And then, so now I can make... Um, I can write things using these algorithms and it sounds it's with my own syntax. And mm-hmm. um, in the, in the third Norton lecture, I, I go into that in, in detail in case anybody wants to check that out I go on and on about that. Uh, but it's about uh, the AI Bible that mm-hmm. they came up with because when I was the artist in residence at this place in Australia, right before the pandemic, and I thought I was going to be spending the pandemic down there because yeah. I just I I made it out on basically the last flight. But oh, wow. before then, I was um, they'd asked me to be the artist in residence there and, uh, and work with this language supercomputer. And so um, I said that sounds cool. And, and then they said, you know what, what what do you want to do with the supercomputer? And um, what what's your idea and i said you know it, it's a super computer doesn't it have some ideas you know of its own of its own <laughs> yeah. let's see what it wants and then so anyway what i decided was i'd like to teach the it to read mm. and so we started with a few different things um and uh loaded all of a uh, uh, bunch of different types of of um, language into it and it didn't do so well and then what we did I, actually I said you know what I really like to do is have it read the Bible because mm-hmm. there's a book that everybody's quoting nonstop and mm-hmm. seems to understand and they're just banging on and I thought you know what would the what would it make of that and so the team that was working on the algorithms is really good so what they did next was they they put everything that I've ever written and they crossed it with the Bible and they sent me a 9,000 page um, <laughs> book that was the Bible according to me. Oh, wow. And how did that come across? Well, um, that was extremely weird because I'm telling you, I mean, it has my syntax, my vocabulary, my way of thinking, let's say. Uh-huh. And I'm telling you with great confidence about uh, the creation of the world. Wow. Um, the dominion of man over animals. Uh, the, the original stories. And <laughs> in revelations. And I'm just like you know, unfurling it for you. you know? And is it in your voice too? Yes, so it sounds my, like Laurie Anderson uh, telling you about the end of the world? Yes. They also made a deep fake so that I, I can tell you the entire Bible. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's pretty good. Well, you know, in, in the spirit of, of people telling stories that resonate with the listener, maybe differently than intended. Um, you know, when I first learned about machine learning, it was actually as a reporter covering 
national security, which I've been writing about for 20 years now. Right. And it was after 9-11 because people in the Defense Department were trying to use machine learning to basically dump lots and lots of communications into computers and figure out what people were plotting and what kind of things right. that they were up to. Oh, you know? boy. Oh, that right? is so amazing. Yeah, yeah. And it was and it was and it was really I mean, it was hard technology back then. I mean, I remember talking yeah. to somebody who was trying to was experimenting with this kind of at a very high end scale, you know, in, in DARPA, which is the Pentagon's think tank. And I said, right. how does this stuff work? Is it good? Is it like good auto translation? He's like, yeah, it's got a long way to go. Right. Uh, and that was, you know, in 2001. So I mean, it's it's so interesting to see how those technologies have migrated into just so many different places now, but it really is. I mean, it's tough stuff. It's, it's very hard to master. So tell me a little bit about where it's come in the last 20 years. You know, I think that it's probably like now we think of things like automatic translation as just, you know, you can get it off Google Translate. I mean, I was, I was working on a story yesterday where I had to translate a news article that was in Farsi, you know, in Persian, and I could hold my phone up to it, and the camera could take an image of the screen, and on my phone, it was all in English. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So that's been pretty, pretty amazing. But the yeah. machine learning in terms of, I think, you know, doing things that people in the intelligence community are interested in, sort of anticipating what people's next steps might be, or or trying to infer the intentions of, let's say, Vladimir Putin, and will he or not invade Ukraine? I don't think that that's advanced to the point where it can quite do that. But the deep fake technology, the the ability to mimic based on information, that's pretty sophisticated. And actually, alarms a lot of people in the intelligence world because what they are concerned about is somebody, you know, making an image or a video that looks like, you know, Joe Biden saying, you know, I've launched uh, the missiles uh, at China or whatever, uh, just uh, to uh, take an extreme example. But, you know, but it's incredibly convincing, isn't it? Some of it, these it really is. It really is. And um, it's, uh, I, I, I don't know, I think it's, um, uh, it's convincing because we we tend to do what we've already done, you know? Mm. So it's, if you put a lot of behavior and a lot of language and a lot of patterns into a program, uh, you, you can predict things that sound very, very plausible, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, of course, um, half the things that are happening are, are things that I wouldn't have imagined. So, I, I don't know how helpful these programs are. I would never have imagined January 6th, mm -hmm. a couple of years ago, never. Right, right. So what machine is going to tell you that that's going to happen? Maybe there, maybe there are way, maybe there are people, actually there are quite a few people who, who say that was much more inevitable than you thought. Yeah, yeah. And, and you don't see where this is going because you don't want to see it. Yeah. It's there's too, a lot of there's a lot of willful delusion probably that goes on too. Yeah, and also it seems it's it's outside of your realm of what seems plausible. Mm -hmm. right? So plausibility is is really um, uh, a, a big thing. I mean that that it would be wonderful to be able to uh, not only imagine the impossible but you know try to. Um, absorb that in another way. I mean, as an artist, that's, that's what, you know, um, art, that's what artists do. You know? yeah. <laughs> right. You're trying to imagine a future in some they sense. Are the, the implausible, the ridiculous, the, the, um, the most beautiful, the most unlikely, you know, and 
and yet it it's it often stays in that realm of of art and and when it actually starts looking like that in the real world although it's harder and harder to tell what that line is between mm-hmm. you know our imaginations and reality and that uh, it, it's it's uh, pretty deep, deeply shocking yeah you know, so i i feel that this this I, I don't know. Do you do you feel the dreamlike quality of this of this uh, era? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's you know, it's funny because um, you know, as a reporter, I mean, your your job is to go out and try to explain the world as best you can understand it in that moment, right? Yeah. You are trying to just define the shape and the the nature of things in that moment, and um, there are just all sorts of counteracting forces that are out there that mm-hmm. make it difficult to do that, obviously. <clears throat> you know, disinformation, misinformation, just the whole space of social media that we're in as journalists where there are just half-truths and untruths kind of flying around. Public trust in the journalism industry has gone down amidst all of that. There is kind of, though, a dreamlike quality to yeah. it. And, I mean, it's, 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 not, it's not unlike for me. I remember how I felt immediately after 9-11, to bring it back to that for a second, of this feeling of I have, was witnessing something that I'd only ever seen in movies. Yeah. Sort of, you know, a Cold War disaster type movies. Yeah. Um, exactly. And then a feeling that things were coming back kind of to reality pretty quickly. This feels sort of more like an extended trip where yes, every day, you know, covering the Trump administration, I mean, it was every day was some break with normality right, or custom, which was also a sort of departure from reality as I had understood it. And um, that that still feels pretty uh, true. And particularly then, of course, you know, you layer the pandemic on top of that. And, you know, people talk about going back to normal. And I'm like, well, maybe it's normal is just resettling itself right now. And we're just getting used to it. Yeah, as a journalist, I think you're obligated to describe that as normal, you Mm -hmm. know, because that that is what is happening. And rather than pretending that we're going to slide back to another thing, right? You're you're reporting yet another, another uh, another fire, another tsunami, another inundation. <laughs> another, yes, you know. Yeah. So the um, I think it's it's the obligation of journalists and artists too. I think if we have an obligation, maybe we don't have any obligations. <laughs> yeah. But maybe we're obliged for our own. Um, uh, sense of sanity and ethics to uh, look at the world as it is, yeah. not as the way we think it should be. I think that's or right. Or could be or would be yeah. if it were a different world, you know? But, right. Um, yes. Yeah, to be honest about that. Yeah. And, and and so much of your work, especially what was in the retrospective, there's some, there's some really key pieces that, that resonated with me on that theme and, pretend, and to intersect with the world that I write about in national security and, and sort of kind of the world after 9-11. And for me, it ends up being this easy line of demarcation because that's when I was a young journalist starting out and that's what propelled me into writing about what I cover. Um, One of the pieces that really struck me the most was your your installation, if I can call it that, um, habeas corpus. Um, I'll just give people the backstory about it and maybe ask you to to describe it because it's it's, it's a big piece, but it focuses on this man, uh, Muhammad El-Gharani, uh, and Garani was one of the youngest prisoners held at the uh, the prison in Guantanamo Bay 
in Cuba. Uh, he was held there for seven years. Uh, he has claimed that he was tortured and essentially they're under false accusations uh, and that when uh, the case finally came to a U.S. federal judge, it just basically fell apart. It was demonstrated that the case was based on allegations from other detainees who had turned informant, who were um, highly inconsistent and unreliable in their own testimony, one of whom it appeared had his own psychological problems. They made claims that Al-Gharani had been a member of a terrorist organization, which based on the timeline they alleged meant he would have had to have been a member of al-Qaeda when he was around age 11, which sort of defied belief. Um, <clears throat> and ultimately, he was released after being held for seven years and, and was kind of in limbo. Um, talk to me about how you, you first, how you how you met him and heard about them, and then we can get into like what you actually decided to do uh, with this piece that's that's built around him and his story. How did you first hear about him and get to meet Algarani? Well, it was quite a long story because I had done um, work with uh, time in prison. Really, is is what it was about, and it began with. Um, in the late 90s, I was asked to do a sound installation in Austria, and and they wanted to do it in a, in a kind of medieval church. Across the town, this, this perfect little Austrian town had in the middle of it, which I didn't, hadn't known, a maximum security prison. Mm. And so I was up in the bell tower facing this a guard in a, in a guard tower, um, with a machine pointing a machine gun at me, and I was like, "Whoa!" And so I ran down. I told the curator, "We're going to do something about the function of telepresence in our culture, and we're going to build a video studio in the prison, and we're going to make a life-size cast of this prisoner and put it in the apse of the church, and then we're going to beam this prisoner, who will be sitting very still, will beam his image onto the life-size." cast of his body so it'll be like a living statue and he'll be sitting there and it'll be about the the relationship of or the attitudes of the church and the prison to the body uh incarnation and incarceration there not there you know so i like this idea of representing time and the body in a different way and i was very interested in doing in this in the u.s i tried to do it um with the Whitney um, and got pretty far with sinks with coordinating with Sing Sing and talking to um, the wardens there. And they have a, a big group of meditators. So they were interested mm. in doing this. And, and then um, that fell apart. Um, basically the Whitney said that the piece was too political. Mm. So I was trying to work with that um, idea and, uh, I was talking to a curator, a really wonderful guy named Germano Cilant, and he was a curator, curator of the Prada Foundation in Milan, and he really liked this idea. So we did this in Milan with the San Vittorio Prison and the Prada Foundation, and I spent a lot of time in the prison because when you collaborate with somebody, um, the worst thing that you can think of is is how, that you're exploiting their experience and using it for your art form. You know, this is a nightmare. You know, so mm -hmm. I had to find somebody who really wanted to do it for uh, his own reasons. 
and I just say his because I, I wasn't able to talk to the women. I was mm. directed to the men. Yeah, yeah. So we had a great time working on this. Cut to um, 15 years later, and then Park Avenue Armory asked me to do a, a project. And I had always, again, I thought, maybe I'm going to give this another shot, try to do this in the United States. I designed a big multi statue piece with working with a lot of upstate prisons who by this time had a lot of cameras in there anyway. Mm. And they were, uh, and they do, you know, there's in Texas and Georgia, there are a lot of reality shows and cameras in prisons and, 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 and they, and they, and a lot of them are kind of like actors, <laughs> you know, they're, right. you know, they're, it's, they're really into it. Uh, and, um, incarceration is their subject and, and they're, uh, and they're doing the whole thing. Um, so, uh, we had kind of worked that out and then it, um, after many months of working on this project, so it was going to be like a, an Egyptian hall of the dead, you know, mm -hmm. you'd walking and you'd be on either side of you would be huge statues like Hatshepsut or something. Mm -hmm. And they would be people who are sitting in prisons very still serving life sentences projected onto these statues projected onto these huge statues lots of living living statues mm -hmm. um the way we basically warehouse these people you know <laughs> uh pretty far along into this project i got a um basically a communication from homeland security saying basically you will never be doing this project wow. in the United States, ever. Don't think about it. And what explanation did they give you that they could even none, try to stop you? None. And the, um, but you know the the uh, I was working with my partner, the Park Avenue Armory, and I, mm. you know, you can't do that to partners. <laughs> you can't endanger their thing, and you know. Yeah. And then. I got in touch through a few friends with some people at Reprieve, and Reprieve is the British group that represents detainees at Guantanamo. And um, they explained the project. To, I remember so well this phone call. It was so strange because it, it's a it, it's a weird request. Do you know anyone who would sit still for? A, couple of months and like to be, you know, projected yeah. into a giant. So this was, you, you kind of pitched them. You pitched Reprieve I, on this idea. Reprieve, yeah, because they work with people there. And, and, and you know, I, I'm babbling on about this and expecting the person on the other end of the line to go, it has been so nice talking with you. Uh -huh. I, I really must go, you know. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. <laughs> no, but instead... She said, um, tell me more. Hmm. And, and then uh, a week later or so, I got a call from her. Um, and uh, she said, I think you have, we have someone you could talk to. It's uh, the youngest detainee at Guantanamo, Mohammed El Garani. And anyway, I talked to Mohammed on the phone. And Mohammed's funny. Yeah. He's funny and he's charming and he's um and he suffered so much but he never the only time i saw mohammed cry was when he talked about shakr who's his one of his fellow detainees mm. who, a guy who helped him so 
Um, but there were other people who helped him. You know, in fact, there was a uh, there was a guard. Now, a lot of these guys, U.S. Army guys, who were the jailers there, had not signed up to be jailers. You know, they right. didn't want to be jailers. They wanted to be soldiers. You know, and then suddenly there were jailers, and they, and this guy, who was one one of the guys assigned to Muhammad for a time, taught him how to read. Hmm. At great risk to himself, he would have been, gotten into so much trouble helping a terrorist, you know. <laughs> so, right. You know, and so, and Mohammed knew that. He could see that. I mean, he he's a very, very smart guy. He could see the dynamics of what was going on in this situation. So anyway, eventually we did this um, project at, at the Park Avenue Armor called Habeas Corpus. We built a studio in Ghana, and we we beamed his image uh, into uh, onto a statue the size of the Lincoln Memorial. And that yes. was very important to me, to announce that scale. Um, and it's remember, monumental scale, and the chair yeah. looks like the chair that Lincoln is sitting in. Yeah, it does. Um, in the in the in DC, we weren't able to, to be the Hirshhorn is too is not tall enough to to do the exact scale. But we did the we did this. It, it it had to be scaled down a bit. But at the Armory, it was the exact size. And I remember the day when um, Kweku Mandala Mandala's grandson came to the show in the Armory. And, and and we had uh, communication with Muhammad the whole time, mm. um, and we said, okay, uh, all, particularly so he could adjust his body to the statue. Make he had to make a lot of minute adjustments while he was sitting there because you imagine you know, you're projecting something onto the same thing, it wobbles a little bit. So we had to say like like move your right hand right pinky finger like mm-hmm. like quarter to match it up with the cast yeah. up with the statue and then the statue would move three feet you know <laughs> it was like uh-huh. big so anyway we said you know Mohammed, right now in new york um Kweku mandala is here at the armory and he's there and and that was another time when when um Mohammed did cry he said you mean i'm i'm sitting on a I'm on a statue the size of Abraham Lincoln, who freed the slaves, and Kweku Mandala is here looking mm-hmm. at me. And so also the way, you know, 21st century people always know where cameras are. Uh, if you're in a, I don't know, parking, uh, underground parking, or wherever you are, you know, you, you kind of have this sixth sense. We're really smart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we know where to look up in the corners. Yeah, yeah it, it's, I think, from, you know, and it seems like an ancient sense of like, where are the dinosaurs? You know, is there something <laughs> creepy right behind me? We know what's creepy right behind us. Still, we haven't even we haven't lost that ability to uh, understand creepiness. So people could see that that there was a camera way way up on the ceiling of the armory to give Mohammed an, a, a view of the statue in the mm-hmm. studio in Ghana. And people realized that suddenly, if they stood right next to the statue with with him behind them, they could wave to him. So they began doing that, and a lot of people began doing that. Um, oh. They would bring guitars. They would bring signs. 
they would mouth words um, uh, to him, and they would try to communicate. And mostly what they were mouthing was, I'm sorry. Mm. Confronted with that case, and, and people were able to look into that in great detail at the armory because we had a very, very exhaustive <laughs> uh, yeah. version of, of his legal case, um, illegal case. Um, uh, they could see very well that this was a guy who was amazingly, you know, bought for $5,000 because he was a Saudi. He was, he was uh, I mean, my experience with Guantanamo was understanding that most of the people there were just very unlucky guys, mm. cab drivers, students, you know, I mean, there were a few, uh, there were a few bad guys, you know, and, um, or whatever you call them, patriots to, to themselves, you know, whatever. Mm. Um, but, uh, in my understanding of it, uh, the majority were, very, very deeply unlucky people and um, brought in, uh, in under really weird circumstances. So um, back to your, uh, what we were saying about the dreams, you know, uh, Mohammed told me a story of one of the detainees who had a dream. He told his interrogator that he had a dream that... Um, uh, that uh, a submarine had come and to rescue all the guys from Guantanamo. Mm. And it was a very vivid dream, and he told it to this interrogator. So the next day, Guantanamo Bay is filled with warships mm. and helicopters looking for the dream submarine. Guantanamo is a dark... American dream. Mm. It has nothing to do with reality. Yeah. And it's and we're still doing it. You know, it's still there. It's, it's still, still there. It's still there. It's Every still, president promises to close it and it's, oh, it's still there. It's a, oh, it's just a national shame. And um so I wanted to put this in in the show in DC in the nation's capital. I and I I, I told Mohammed, who is looking for citizenship now and trying to find a place, because every place he goes, we stop him. Yeah, we he's sort of a man without a country in some ways, isn't he? Yeah. Completely, thanks to us, we we make sure that they know that he was a suspected terrorist, and his nightmare continues thanks to us. We don't make any attempt to. I mean, there's no idea of apology, of course, because that would admit that we might have been mistaken. Could never admit that. Um. Mohammed wrote me a letter that he wanted to, to that was addressed to Joe Biden, and he, he asked me to please deliver it. I have tried many ways to deliver it, and the next time I'm in D.C., which will be in about a week, I'm going to physically bring the letter there. Mm. Um, I've sent it to my congressman. I've sent it to the White House. I've sent it to the vice president, um, whose name uh, I really love. I mean, I don't know why... Um, Davy was not a bigger deal. Do you? 
because her middle name is Devi, which means mm. goddess. Mm-hmm. Her first name, Kamala, means lotus. Mm-hmm. So lotus goddess Harris. <laughs> and now that she's president of the Senate, president lotus goddess Harris, and she's actually vice potus, so it's, pre- it's Madam Vice Potus Lotus. Uh, yeah, that's, I hadn't thought of it Harris. that way. <laughs> yeah. I'm partial to her last name, too, but that's just my personal name. Exactly. The Harrises <laughs> they are, are everywhere. It's fantastic. <laughs> anyway, so there's no, been no response. I, I, it, yeah. Basically, the letter just says, I'm not asking for an apology, Mr. President. I'm just asking for an acknowledgement that this happened. Right. That's it. Right. Um, we are going to do an event either on the May 3rd or 4th in D.C. with the um, Afri- Museum of uh, African American Art. Is that the actual name of the museum? Is it or, or African American culture? Maybe. Well, there's, the new one is the Museum of African American History. There is a separate uh, African Art Museum, yeah, but I think exactly. you probably mean the new this one. This is the, the History Museum of African American. Yeah. And it's going to be a joint event with the Hirshhorn, and we and Mohammed will be uh, part of that remotely. He'll be <laughs> coming into that. A familiar medium for him. Uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> very. And. Um, Beaming into where a country he's not allowed in, which is really one of the perks of working with technology. Yeah. You can ignore the borders. Well, and, and you and you really you bring that into the piece too, which uh, there's this quote on the wall from from Muhammad, uh, who of course, as you said, legally can't come to the U.S. And it says, and it's it's written as if it's written in hand. It says, "I have chosen to be here virtually because I am not allowed to come the, to this country, and I have some things to say." <laughs> no kidding, he has things to I say. I mean, it's just it, it, it's and yeah. it's it it just really it's it's such a profound element of the piece because then you turn around and he is sitting there you know yeah. like Lincoln in the memorial and and yeah. he does he does talk about his story yeah. through it but it's it's almost as if that quote just kind of sums it up pretty yeah. profoundly and it's a bit of a gut punch i found too yeah. Yeah. Um, but a reminder that yeah he, he the the reason that you're beaming him onto this statue is not merely for effect or some kind of artistic expression it's because he legally cannot be there to yeah, talk no, about his story it's, it's simply giving him a microphone and a yeah. conduit to to talk to people and when we just think that we live in this information culture right. it, it becomes even more laughable when people are going now how many days do you have to be isolated because i'm you know like nobody <laughs> knows a thing you know it's yeah just, it's just laughable that we, we we pretend we live in this information-rich culture. Um, we don't know what's going on with Guantanamo. We don't know what's going on with most 95% of U.S. policy in various right. places. Right. We you see know, the tip of the iceberg and hope we don't hit iceberg, it. I mean, it's the, the – and, and some of the people who do say let's try to see what's going on are not, a, not I mean, talking about Julian Assange and I'm talking about Chelsea Manning, are not acknowledged. They are, in fact, instead punished. Mm-hmm. Punished. We punish people who want to tell us what's going on or right. any other version than the official whatever version. So that's what we do in this country. We punish them. Yeah, for, for people who, who want to be truth tellers, it's, it's become a very it's become a riskier time to be in that business is the wrong word, but in that pursuit, I think yeah, it's, uh, yeah. yeah. And you as a journalist, how are you feeling about this? Uh, you know, it's, it's, I guess, um, it's a mixture of, I think, you know, 
feeling threatened is too strong of a word, although certainly colleagues of mine who covered, you know, Trump rallies, let's say, and were repeatedly, you know, shouted at by members of the audience, I think they felt physically, you know, endangered. And certainly people, you know, are physically threatened online. And this is particularly a problem for for women journalists as well, who just suffered horrible, you know, uh, abuse online. Um, but more than anything, I think it, it, it's sad for me because, you know, I don't get up in the morning trying to think, now, how can I deceive people today? How can I mislead people today? Uh, and I think a very, very large number of people in this country think that's precisely what I'm trying to do. Uh, you know, sadly, including people probably in my own family who kind of perceive me as having taken up a side that is somehow opposed to them uh, mm -hmm. and, and, and being a manipulator instead of trying to be a fact finder. So it, it's a tough environment to work in. And I don't, I don't really have a good answer for how to counteract that except to just get up every day and do the work um, and, and, you know, and hope that it stands for something. I mean, you know, as journalists, we're always saying like, well, we want to make a difference. But, you know, making a difference, it's a really hard thing to measure what difference you make or how do you move a needle or cause events to change. Sometimes as journalists, certainly we, we do that by virtue of what we show people and we expose something that was happening um, and it stops or people change the behavior. But, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's been a bit of a, um, uh, you know, you actually feel like Sisyphus sometimes <laughs> in this job. Oh, sure. Yeah, but not a reason to stop doing it. I just think it's become, it's certainly become more dangerous. I mean, journalists around the world are threatened and, and you know, uh, and killed and, you know, or threatened in ways that they weren't, uh, or they have been historically, but it's kind of, a, it's, it, it's, it's, I think probably at a higher rate now, but, um, it's, it's, I think it's the feeling that I have that's the sometimes going to be overwhelming and almost defeating is the idea that there are people who just assume I'm acting in bad faith. And that's just that, that could not be farther from the truth. Yeah. I mean, how, how can we get around that? I mean, that is, that is absolutely the summing it up. And and uh, it's my struggle every single day as well. Um, how how this how this happened? What we can do about it? I'm from a generation where we had the hubris and uh, um, to think that we could change things. Yeah. Um, we credited ourselves with a lot of things, like stopping the Vietnam War. Yeah. Um, we had the advantage of having. Uh, a huge um, support system, the counter called the counterculture. Sure, we had our own food, our own way we looked, our own music, mm -hmm. our politics, our beliefs, mm -hmm. our 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 whole thing. We had a vibe. Yeah. We we were a tribe. It was like that was it was, um, and we did sneer at other people the way people sneer at people now actually have to admit because we thought people who for example were looking to have jobs were like idiots <laughs> we were right. just going to dance down that road forever right peace and freedom and love and that still inspires me now that yeah. i still want to do that i still love that idea i still don't want to have a job and i never have had one so um it's uh i it's a different world but I think if we can figure out how to be a little bit more tribal, maybe mm. in that way, I mean, it's, it's almost the opposite of what you, you know, we're, we're supposed to like be one big happy family. That's never going to happen. But maybe if our, um, uh, I, 
and I hesitate to use the word side, but it, it is a side, um, can be a little bit more open and a little bit more fun-loving, you know, mm-hmm. um, um, and and not so, you know, um, accusatory all the time. Yeah. And, and it, it, it's, I mean, um, and humorless. Right. Know, absolutely humorless. Did you ever see Don laugh? Don Trump. Yeah. Oh, uh, no, no. And you're putting your finger on something I've told people as well before. I, he, he doesn't laugh. No. It's like he doesn't have a sense of humor. No, he doesn't. And I, and, and I often thought to myself, well, like, I often thought to myself, it's like, what is the source of joy in this man's life? And, Zero. And, and I don't, Zero yeah, I don't, I don't think there was one. Uh, all, I feel that from, from that whole movement of anger coming from anger rather than, uh, rather than joy. And I, and I do understand the anger of people living in this country feeling like, what's the point of anything? All I get is like like a crummy car, a lousy job. I don't even see the point of living. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, you know, when you think of, you're driving your lousy job, you're having a, crappy food, you know, to drive. It's, it's not a nice life. We haven't created a, a, a way for people to be happy here. We've re- created a, a lot of misery. I mean, when we when I go to other places, I, I was just working in, in Copenhagen. Like a, a few weeks ago, I, I went to Saudi Arabia and Copenhagen on a, one, of, one of those... <laughs> Weeks wow. where you could like slip out of the country really fast. Uh-huh. I was went to Saudi Arabia to be on the jury of the film festival and there, which was really fun. And then I went to Copenhagen to work on a project that I've been dreaming about doing of uh, this kind of talking choir that all everyone has headphones and and just being in that country in Denmark and um, I mean all we all have real problems. We all have really deep problems, um, principally caused by people getting more and more stuff, you know. Right. Um, and 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 certainly um, Denmark has problems, but just walking around there is 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 such a different feeling. It's not as bad as here. It's just not and mm-hmm. because it's a more open culture. It's also it helps that it's more homogenous. And of yeah. course, whenever I, I, I spent time in the, in the 60s, let's say, in places like Amsterdam, they're going, oh, Americans are so messed up. They're, look at your, your all the troubles you're having. And I'm like, well, wait a second. You know, you try, you try living in, a, in a, a culture that has 50 different things going on. Right. You live next to somebody who looks just like you. All you have to argue about is right. like, like you have a darker blue shirt than I do. And I mean, you know. Yeah, we have this wildly heterogeneous culture. <laughs> oh, yeah. And they, and yeah. they started to get the point when uh, they said to their colon, their Moluccan colonies, hey, well, you should come back and live in Holland. They did. And then they, they realized, wait a second. It's not that easy to live with neighbors who have a different, very different, culture than you do yeah you better you better uh try to understand what that is and and america is the biggest experiment in that 
by when you've talked about like your work being about telling trying to tell a national story i mean do you think of it do you think of yourself as quintessentially american is that how you identify oh gosh i i probably said that in a really pretentious stupid moment i mean and also at a time when America was very different. I mean, I'm, mm. I'm a Midwesterner, and I thought I had a bead on a thing. I, I you know, it's it's so complicated. I, mm. There's so many American stories. Um, mine is one of millions, you know. Um, and and I, I think uh, the stories are getting rewritten so fast. Sixteen nineteen is 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 a. a, a an amazing way to reevaluate everything that's going on here, mm-hmm. you know, and you, you start looking through somebody else's eyes for one second and you're going to realize that's, that's also a deeply American story. Mm-hmm. Deeply. Yeah. And yeah. which is the main story? They're all the main stories, you know? So, um, how do you tell those stories? Well, I guess, I don't know who gets the megaphone. <laughs> well, you've, and you've told stories, I mean, about through your own personal experience, right, that I think are deeply resonant because, you know, they're specific, but also people can see themselves. And I mean, there's, there's a piece in the, in the retrospective, which I think came um, from your film Heart of a Dog, uh, which was about your dog Lola Bell, who died. And you're talking about the story of walking her in the park and you see the birds up in the sky and then you realize that they're hawks. And there's this moment uh, that the dog has of terror when they realize she realizes these are birds of prey that are coming after her, <laughs> and, you, and then you equate that to 9/11, and yeah. and a feeling of you know that the that there was something, you know that there was coming you know something was wrong with the air as you say, and the sky yeah. brought danger, and it would be that way from now on. Yeah, I mean. Not to make 9-11 it's a uniquely American story, but I think everybody felt that way. Yeah, and so there you took something that was highly specific to you and told it in a way that when I saw that, I was like, exactly. That's exactly yeah. how I felt and still feel when I see a plane in the sky sometimes. Yeah, fear is, um, fear is uh, something that dogs understand very well, too. Yeah. She was a city dog from New York. I took her to California. I didn't mean to teach her death by going to California, but it wouldn't be the first time people learned about death by going to California. Sure, yeah. But, uh, but anyway, um, they are, are very um, vivid the way we are, um, and they, they can sense... Um, uh, Thing. So it, it, it's back to the, the, the hairs on the back of your neck going uh-huh. up. You know, we, we still are exquisitely sensitive to things and, and can use those other senses. When we're barraged with media, it tends to drown those and, and mute them a little bit, I think. Mm-hmm. To mute our natural tendencies to go, whoa, that's bullshit, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that, that is, no, that, no, that's not right. You know, that guy's right. crazy. Yeah. No, but then you can get a million other messages going, and and it and it blunts your instincts. Yeah, there's a signal to noise problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and so you you start um, uh, weighing other people's ideas. So that must be forefront of your mind as a journalist. <laughs> you know that that the kind of power that you have to sway. Yes. Tell a story that could be right or could be like nuts. Could right. be nuts. It could just be like, I just won the election. And yeah. you're nuts if you don't believe that. You're like, right. whoa, we have entered a 
dream and well i don't i wouldn't say dream zone i would say it was a little more nightmarish than that yeah um on just continuing the theme in the time we have left here on just on national security related, I guess, influences in your work. And they show up to me in these such surprising ways. And you tell me if I have this wrong, but um, Oh, Superman, which was your song that was, you know, uh, probably the song you're probably most well known for. And it's safe to say probably an unexpected hit. I mean, it was number two on the UK charts when it came out. I think it was bigger than the Rolling Stone signal at the time. <laughs> so a lot of people will know that song. I read that this was inspired by the Iran hostage crisis. Is that right? It was. You know, it was a, and this was a, and also by a, a, a work by Bassanet called Au Souverain, which is a prayer um, uh, about justice, really. Au Souverain, au juge, au père is how it begins. It's like it, um, it's an appeal for justice. And um, the, and it was, and I wrote it uh, with the, <laughs> um, ho- the hostage um, uh, event in which we, we tried to go and rest- rescue the hostages. And it was like a really big deal. Ah, technology rules, America rules, America number right. one. So and what happened? The helicopters crashed and burned in the mm-hmm. desert. I mean, Technology will not save us. Mm-hmm. My favorite thing uh, about technology was written by a cryptologist, and I can't remember his name right now, but what he said was, um, if you think technology will solve your problems, you don't understand technology, and you don't understand your problems. Mm. And I, I think that's right on. You yeah. know? That could because have been written in your retrospective in the room with all of the uh, the. I, wrote, I did so write that in there. That okay, now I'm remembering why I heard. Okay, yeah, so it's on that big, that big room <laughs> I put, I put surrounded by text. Maxims yeah. in there, and that's a yeah. maxim by a cryptographer that I absolutely love. And yeah. I'm somebody who loves technology. I'm a geek. Yeah, that's but, just, it's just part of your medium. But it's, it's uh, so true that, you know, if you think those tech fire engines are going to come in and screeching in at the last second and save us, you are deluded. Yeah. We're too far down this line to do now that. I'm, now I'm thinking of this song and the lyrics of Oh Superman in Whole New Ways. It's, you know, here come the planes, they're American planes. In this case, helicopters, and they crashed in the desert. I mean, it's, it's yeah. it makes me yeah. see it in a new way. Here come the planes. They're American planes made in America. Were you surprised that was such a hit, by the way? <laughs> well, you know, I, I did that song for, like, on an NEA grant. Thank you, DC. Yeah. NEA grant for $500. Uh, wow. And um, I was sending it off mail order. You know, I would get an order. Somebody would call me and they'd go, can I get a one of those records, and I would, oh, yeah, what's your address? And I would wrap it up, take it to the post office down the street on Canal Street and send it off. And then, you know, I got a call one day from a DJ in London, uh, John Peel, and he said, I, I need to order some records. I said, great, what, how many How many do you need? He said, well, uh, 40,000 oh my God. Friday and 40,000 more on Monday. And I was like, no problem. Whoa. <laughs> Anyway, I I, uh, I called Warner Brothers because they had been coming to my shows and uh-huh. and saying you should make a record. And I was like, uh, uh-uh, uh, I don't. I, that's pop stuff. I, I, I I'm an artist. 
don't bother me. I'm, I'm not a pop person, you know. And so anyway, I called him up and I said, you know that record you were, you know, like, can you press some records for me? And they said, eh, that is not the way we do things here at Warner <laughs> Brothers Records and Tapes, you know. We are going to sign a contract with us. I was like, uh-oh, time to work. They're going to give me a job. Devil time, you know. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, well, I, I went for it. And I, I was glad. I, I, I liked them a lot. I had a yeah. good time. It, and it was fun prancing around like that for a while. <laughs> it was, it's, it's so deeply silly, though. I unfortunately always had the attitude of uh, kind of an anthropologist, mm-hmm. you know, so it was so, so silly that, you know, I would go to cities and people would start screaming. They're like, ah, I was like, you're crazy. Um, right. Like you, you crossed over into like pop stardom. And, yeah. Know. Yeah. And was, you know, but it was, it was, um, and I knew how unreal it was. And, mm-hmm. I, and, and also, you know, when you get something that you don't want or you weren't dreaming about, it's a different mm-hmm. kind of getting than getting something that you did dream of oh yeah this was this was not the way that you expected to achieve necessarily like mass celebrity was through (laughs) through a single yeah you know it 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 was just weird so i i approached it as that way and i I was happy i mean i i think I, i think i'm probably lying to myself a little bit because i did fall for it a little bit probably uh huh. but but not not it wasn't the main thing the main I thing see. was just it was seemed a little bit ridiculous to me, like yeah. really ridiculous. Probably strange that you also you you knew and had such close relationships with so many musicians and popular musicians to so then suddenly have one of your own in that category. Did it feel a little bit like, whoa, somebody just let me into this club that I wasn't expecting to to gain no, access I to? I didn't know that many pop artists. I, I was hmm. in the art. World. Well, it's not popularist yet. Much more, you know, yeah, not not was, not quite mainstream, but no, I wasn't at all. I mean, and. And I got a lot of criticism from artists for that. Like, mm. what are you doing? That's so, that's so low rent. Oh my gosh, you're selling out. Oh wow, it, it, interesting. It was crossing over, uh, you know, about at that time it was called selling out. Then a couple months later, it was called crossing over. Crossing and then suddenly over. everyone wanted to, wanted to cross over. And now there's no boundary, particularly between those. Not a hard one. Yeah. Between, um, art and pop. It's it, people cross over it more easily all the time, but at the, at that time, um, that was considered sort of like um, oh uh, heresy. Yeah, but then artists did it credibly. Like I think of like Peter Gabriel doing it. You know, where his videos were not just videos; they were pushing the boundaries of animation and storytelling yeah. yet they were being seen by millions of people. But you look at them, they're like, these are very sophisticated artworks at the same time. Yeah. I think it, it was a, it, it was an interesting way that things began going back and forth between art and, and pop. And, and also that was already happening in the art world. I remember even uh, way back when you would go to a gallery opening on Saturday morning and then by Monday, that visual idea was comped up in an ad for shoes, you know, so oh, wow. it, it was kind of already pretty fluid. Yeah. And, and, uh, and so now, uh, it's, it's, a uh, so deeply, uh, and obviously an art market as opposed to an art world. Um, 
and, and anytime you look at any sort of NFT proposal, you realize it's about what? Ka-ching, yeah. ka-ching. Yeah, and even you know, about the, the work, they're all like kind of cartoons. Not, not yeah. all of them, but a lot of them are like kind of basically yeah. cartoons. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, we're just about the end of the time we have together. So our last our tradition here on the podcast on Chatter is the last question is inside the Chatter box, which I hold here right. in my hand. So I'm going to reach in here. I'm going to select at random a previously written question. Okay. And that's going to be the last question that uh, we have for you today. Let's see. Oh, this is a good one. What book or books are on your nightstand or your Kindle or your Audible list of books coming up? So what are you reading? I'm reading a million things, but right now I'm reading Mindfulness of Breathe, Breathing by um, Bhikkhu Analyo. Oh, and fabulous. And, yeah, and uh, because I'm studying that right now. Mm-hmm. And um, let's see. Uh Lydia Davis, volumes mm. two of her essays about translation, such a great book. Oh, gosh. I mean, you can, you know, open a page and suddenly she's going, you know, let's talk about how Flaubert used bovine in so many of his works, starting mm. with Madame Bovary. Mm. And you're like, oh, wow, he's, he had such a sense of humor. He was calling his characters Mrs. Cow, more or less. <laughs> You know, let's talk about Mrs. Cow, winkety-wink. Anyway, um, she's a, such a wonderful translator and uh, and thinker. So mm-hmm. uh, I also, because I got in the research mode over the last year, because I had to do the Norton lectures, I had to really get up to speed on a lot of different uh, categories really quickly. So my library kind of tripled. And <laughs> wow. now I have a lot of books that are kind of half-read. So... They're not fitting on my night table. Yeah. Have you read the book Breath by James Nestor, the journalist? Yes. yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's lovely. It's a good book, too. Yeah, yeah it's just something that's on my mind a lot lately is, is breathing as well. Yeah, um, and also the book When Breath Becomes Air. Oh, I will get that. I will check that out. It's a beautiful book about death. Okay, I will look at that. Um, and by the way, the video at the very beginning of our conversation that was the Zoom montage. I, I went back and looked it up. It is by the band um, Thou and the Get Down, Stay Down, and the song is called Phenom. Phenom? Phenom, yeah. I'll, I'll send it to you. It's, oh, a, you. That's it's, a, it's a great song, and the video is really cool. Oh, how they did I can't it. wait to see it. It's it was a triumph. So nice talking to you. This is really fun. Laurie Anderson, thank you so much. It was genuinely a delight to talk to you. Thank you for coming on and talking about your work, and be well. Same. Bye. That was Chatter, a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at That Was Chatter.